Across Canada, the number of houses and condos being sold is dropping and prices are dropping too. But has anything really changed in the real estate market? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Mortiza Hader, a professor of real estate management at Toronto Metropolitan University and director of the Urban Analytics Institute about why he thinks affordable housing may still be out of reach in Canada. Hader said that rising interest rates have forced people to look for cheaper houses, which is bringing prices down on average. But he said the problem remains the same as before. There's too many people and not enough houses. Things could get interesting in a couple years, though, as hybrid work arrangements take a more permanent shape and companies reconsider their commercial office space. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Mortiza, thank you so much for coming on Down to Business today. Thank you for having me. Most people have heard that rising interest rates have cooled housing prices. Has the market for buying homes hit rock bottom? It is true that the rapid increase in interest rates, which also resulted in a rapid increase in mortgage rates, the market, especially sales, have declined significantly. There's like 50 to 60% decline in sales from the peak period in February of 2022. And there's also been a decline in housing prices, not as extreme as has been the decline in the number of dwellings being sold, but there has been an incline in the housing prices all across Canada. And the reason for this is obvious. As mortgage rates go up, the threshold for uh, new home buyers to qualify for the mortgage, that threshold increases. Therefore, a house that you may have qualified for in the past, let's say a million dollar home, your qualification may drop to maybe $800,000 level. So you may no longer be active in the million dollar range, you will be searching in an $800,000 range. So what happens in that case is that the buying activity shifts slightly to lower priced homes. However, I always offer this caveat that the decline in average prices does not mean that the price of the average house has also declined by the same extent. Interesting. What do you see happening in the actual market? Like, what types of trends are you seeing? So I think the biggest impact that I'm seeing is that it's taking much, much longer to sell now. There's a term we use called days on market. How many days on average it took for homes to sell? Or at the peak of the demand cycle and during the pandemic, the moment you list, you will have prospective buyers knocking on your door. And the days on market were down significantly. That is gone now, and it's taking increasingly longer, and less desirable properties are taking even longer to sell, which means that the sellers are sticking to the price expectation they had, which was formed by higher prices during fe- up until February of 2022. So you are a seller, and you wanted to sell, and you saw the prices in February, so you picked a price that is similar to the prices in February, but you're discounting the decline that happened in March, April, May, June, and July. So you're sticking to your price, which may not be as relevant to the current market conditions. So what happens then? It takes much, much longer. And smarter people either decide, well, I don't have to sell, they withdraw the sale from the market, or they reduce the price to bring it in line with the expectations of buyers. So what I've seen is that in, let's say, cottage country around Toronto, during pandemic, people wanted to go out because they couldn't travel abroad. So there was a humongous increase in demand for cottages. 
properties were you know, listed in the morning, sold in the afternoon. It was that kind of a demand. And now if you look at the real estate the MLS, you will see that similar quality or even better units, waterfront cottages have been listed for 30 days and 40 days and 50 days, and they are not selling. And the reason they are not selling is perhaps because the sellers are not reducing the price, recognizing that the demand that was there for the last 18, 20 months is no longer there. I think there's not as much of a decline in demand for condominiums relative to what I see for larger ground-oriented dwellings. But again, these trends differ by each city. Montreal is a much different market than Toronto, and Toronto is different from Vancouver. So one can make location market-specific comments, but not overall blanket statements. There are no generalizations across the entire market. I guess, except for the fact that the volume of sales, that sort of pace of transactions, which sort of makes us think about a market getting hot, which affects psychology about how people buy, that, as a result of rising interest rates, has slowed. So there's a caveat there as well. And the reason I don't get worked up about it is the following. If you go back to 2019, you will notice that in Canada, we would sell around 525,000 properties every year. Then 2020, And then there was a disruption during March and April, but then there were higher number of sales. Then came 2021. And in 2021, the MLS system registered around 675,000 sales across Canada, which means that during 2021, about 150,000 more homes were sold than one would have expected otherwise. If you draw a trend line from 2010 to 2021, uh, you wouldn't expect 675,000. Maybe you expect 510, 520, maybe 550. So you see about 150,000 more sales happened during 2021. And the way I see it is that these are forward buys. Forward buy is when you advance your purchase to an earlier date to avoid something. For example, if you know that there was a tax coming up in 2022, to avoid paying that tax, you will buy a house in 2021. Okay, so that's called forward buy. And I think during the pandemic, there was lots of people who were thinking that maybe we will not be able to travel again. Maybe housing is for them. The renting is not necessarily their lifestyle. They have to buy a house or so on and so forth. People wanted to buy bigger homes or second home or recreational home. We ended up with 150,000 homes more sold during 2021 which I believe some of it, maybe half of it, maybe more, was forward by from 2022, which means that sales that would have happened in 2022 ended up in 2021, which makes sales in 2022 less than the previous years. And obviously, if the previous year sales were not normal year, they were exceptionally high, then you realize these sales were lost to the last year. And for this reason, the lower number of sales in 2022 do not concern me as much because I realized some of the sales that would have happened this year have already taken place last year. So in other words, the sort of pace of transactions isn't necessarily a good indication of anything. Absolutely. Let's see, when you realize that last year was an anomalous year with 150,000 more sales than we were expecting, then the following year would be where this correction will happen. Because see, people who advance their sales to to an earlier time period will not be back in the market buying another property or buying another car. So is the decline in sales affected by mortgage rates? The answer is yes. Is the entire decline be attributed to the change in mortgage rates? And my answer is no. Yeah. So where have you seen the most pronounced price declines? 
So when I look at the prices, which I recently did for the city of Toronto, I found out that the biggest declines were uh, for higher price properties. So 1.5 million or more, there you see the biggest decline in sales. And, and obviously, because they are heavy, higher priced uh, properties, higher declines in, in value. And the s- smallest decline in sales were for properties under $600,000 in value. So you could see that the sales activity has slightly shifted to lower priced homes. And that's where the prices are not as much declining in relative terms as they have in the higher priced homes. So housing prices are falling a little, maybe for smaller priced homes, a little less. But kind of counterintuitively, while you know the cost of buying a home may be declining slightly in some categories, all the reports I've heard or read say that the average cost to rent, say, in a city like Toronto or another large city is actually rising. Why are housing prices falling and the cost of rentals rising? Very good question. Now, in this current uh, condition where you see housing sales have declined significantly, it also means that those renters who are planning to transfer from renting to ownership, now they are delaying this decision and they are extending their stay as renters. So if you look at it, then it means that those who would have vacated rental units and moved into owner-occupied units, they are continuing to occupy those rental units that are no longer available to other renters who would have rented it, which means that as sales decline, renters extend their stay in rental market, and that results in a decline in the supply of rental units So the demand continues to increase. Rental units that were supposed to be vacated are not being vacated and therefore increase demand, lower supply, and rents go off. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. That's interesting how all these things are connected. The pandemic, inflation, rising interest rates to tame inflation. But a lot of people think that after the interest rates do start to tame inflation, maybe we'll have a recession and they'll stop raising interest rates or maybe even cut them. And that basically leaves us where we were, which means housing prices could start rising again sometime in the maybe medium term. Is that basically your view that there haven't been any fundamental changes in the housing market? Yeah. At this moment, many people believe that interest rates will still continue to be raised. Uh, At the same time, A large number of economists are now saying that we may be heading into a recession. So 2023 would be an interesting period where we may have just raised interest rates or we may follow with cutting interest rates after we have increased them based on how the American markets perform. Uh, However, nothing set in stone. All these forecasts end up wrong anyways. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But what will happen is that housing markets will continue to moderate uh, for the remaining part of this year. They will moderate, continue to moderate in the early part of the next year. And then if there is continue to be a higher demand coming from this planned immigration of about 400,000 plus immigrants into Canada per year, that would create a demand for housing more so in the lower end and rental market. But still, there's a demographic push. And then if the interest rates stabilize or are, are cut in the, in, in the latter half of 2023, you will see prices start to increase again, or at least stabilize and stop falling. So these trends are expected, 
But again, this is the cycle that one sees. The cost of borrowing goes down. People go out and borrow as much as they can. The cost of borrowing increases. People stop borrowing or at least borrow less. And that's how housing markets are structured in North America. So if I were to look into the future, I would see that the demand will return and prices should stabilize and show some strength by the second half of next year. Yeah, I guess one question I have is the pandemic, you know, opened up remote work. It emptied out all these large office buildings, made it possible to kind of live wherever you want. Is it still too early to say whether that is going to have a meaningful impact on the housing market? Yes. So let's look at numbers. Before pandemic, about 12% of Canadians worked from home. At the peak of mobility restrictions, about 40% of Canadians were working from home. And I think there is this increasing, not consensus, but companies are increasingly adapting to this three-day model where people are working from home two days or working from office two days, right? So two days from home, three days from office, five-day office, nine to five. That cycle has been interrupted. It will be very hard to go back to. So from a 12% working from home, I think we probably would settle around 20 to 30%, maybe around 20% or more which means that there would be a significant decline in the demand for office space, demand for commuting, and there will be this continuation of the trend where people are working from home. So what it means is that it increases the value of the home. The home becomes your office, the home becomes your lunch space, because you, you know, if you're working, you go out for lunch uh, or take your lunch and have it at the office. But now all of this is happening at your home. And because the utility of the house increases, they have bigger homes with, that can dedicate space for office space, that their valuation will be higher relatively from before than homes or dwellings that do not have that extra space. So I think going forward, even when pandemic is gone completely from our concerns and policy landscape, still I would see that the valuation of homes with dedicated office space will be higher because this trend is going to stay with us. And the reason for this, especially for large urban markets, is that there's this extra variable. They said that you can't escape debt and taxes, um, but in cities, you can't escape debt, taxes, and traffic congestion. <laughs> so, so if you realize that going back to that normal, pre-pandemic normal means that embracing congestion with open arms again, that is a scenario nobody wants. People would try to avoid it. And also, office leases are five to 10 years long. And right now, most office leases are there. Even though the buildings were empty, the offices were empty, commercial tenants still paid their rents. At some point, when these leases are renegotiated, I think many firms, banks and law firms and accounting firms and big users of commercial office space, they will try to rationalize the space that they need. And at that time, I think some other dominant changes you will see, not just in residential real estate, but also in office real estate. Huh. So it's still a couple years out, but there could be some lingering effects from all that. Well, yeah, because commercial leases don't come up every year for renewal. I would look at the office real estate market starting 2025 to 2027 to see when these leases come up for renewal, what happens to them. And what do you think will eventually happen? You know, in May 2020, right around the start of the pandemic, we wrote a report from our Urban Analytics Institute. And we pointed out that there will be some conversion of office space to residential. And as I mentioned, all forecasts are wrong. We were slightly more optimistic than we should have been. 
there's been some conversion, but not to the extent that we were expecting. I think if the demand for residential real estate results in much, much higher prices post-2023, and when commercial leases come up for renewal at that time, there may be rationalizing of some space, office space, and then you would see a renewal of this demand to convert redundant office space into residential. So I think from a long-term perspective, you still have to wait and see how the impacts of COVID-19 will realize on office real estate. It's not that obvious right now, but I think it will become clearer in two to three years as is the interplay between the demand for office space and demand for rental space. Yeah, that makes sense. So the federal liberal government just in late August announced that it was moving ahead with this rent-to-own program alongside some other housing initiatives. Do you have any sense about whether any of those policies will have any meaningful impact? No, these hardly make any difference. First, I think the government is putting aside $200 million. That's not a sizable amount. And even if it were, these policies have been introduced elsewhere in, in the United States and the UK before, and they haven't transformed into a major trend in the past. If you realize the rent to own is, is a very limited impact policy, I don't see that making any meaningful difference in any real estate market across Canada. It has some inherent challenges. You don't own it, but you pay, like if the furnace, let's say, breaks, uh, you're still renting, but you have to fix it, right? These are the things that the, as renters, people are not used to, right? If you're a renter, the AC breaks, breaks down, you call the landlord, say, fix the AC. So people realize the implications, but they realize that they have would have to act as owners, even though they are renters, they don't get that excited. And I think the cost also increases. It's not something that will reduce the price of the same dwelling if you were to have bought it outright. Because people are investing, the landlord also has to make money, either that being a person or a corporation. The same dwelling would be more expensive in a rent-to-own transaction than a traditional transaction. So put all these concentrations in place, we realize there are not many takers for this. So everybody has a sort of different take on what needs to happen to make housing affordable in Canada. Do you have a specific policy prescription you want to see? Yes, and that is build more homes. We estimate that Canada should have built about 2.5 to 4 million more homes between 1975 and today. If it's just build more homes, though, I mean, it seems like it's not a single policy. Like the federal government, they can invest, but you can only build so many homes in the places people want to live, too, right? There's zoning issues that you run into. It seems like it'll take a lot of policies. Yes, but they all start from this realization that you need to build more homes. Okay. So the government of Ontario estimated 2 million new homes between now and 2030. A new report came from Smart Prosperity Institute a week or two ago. They also estimated 1.5 million new homes, of which 1 million would be built regardless. But you have to build another half a million to account for the homes that you have not built in the last so many years. Basically, even this realization that we have not built enough wasn't there. There were urban planners and others who were arguing that, no, we have enough homes. We don't need to. If people are greedy or, or, or there are banks making too much money and they were blaming everybody, but not realizing that if we had continued to build at the rate we were building in 1971 and 1972, we would have built at least 2.5 to 4 million more homes in Canada. 
So then the question is, can the feds do anything? Yes, they can. They can provide loans. Uh, they can provide incentives. They, they have the biggest leverage with taxation. They can change it in a way that facilitates and encourages more construction. The provincial government often has a lot of incentives in terms of land that they own. Provincial governments also regulate a certification of trade. If you want to build 2 million more homes, you will need more trades. You will need people working on roofs, plumbers, electricians, bricklayers. You will need all sorts of trades. And if you have strict certification standards, that means that this additional supply will not come. So you may have to A, expedite certifications, or you may have to bring in people. You don't have to just immigrate engineers and scientists and, and business professionals. You can also immigrate trades. And therefore, the federal government goes has a bigger role in opening that door for people, trade, certified trades from Europe and Asia and elsewhere. And then the municipal governments who control zoning and the municipal governments are the ones who are at least concerned in terms of housing affordability. They always push affordability as a matter that should be dealt with provinces or by the federal government. But they don't realize that the neighborhoods and the city and is, is unaffordable, not the country. So you see, if you want to make housing affordability a problem for Justin Trudeau, then you have to say housing is unaffordable across Canada. And that's not true. Parts of Canada are not that very expensive. But housing is unaffordable regardless of where you live in Toronto, where you, regardless of where you live in Vancouver, regardless of where you live in many other places. So it's more to me question that should be put to the mayor of the city saying, sir, your city, madam, your city is unaffordable. You can go to the councillor and say, dear councillor, this neighborhood is unaffordable so that you can pressure them to think in terms of revising the rezoning. See, municipal governments and municipal representatives are voted in by today's voters. And the today's voter is a homeowner who wouldn't like to see densification around them. So you have to find ways to encourage municipalities to rezone for higher density and more construction within their city limits. Yeah. Well, as I always say, when I have a conversation about real estate, this is such a wicked problem. It doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime soon. But I thank you so much for coming on Down to Business to talk to me about it. Thank you very much. That was Mortisa Hader, a professor of real estate management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks as always for listening to Down to Business. And thanks to Bryce Hall, who composed and performed the original music on this show, designed the logo, and produced this episode. Thanks to Pamela Heaven, Victoria Wells, and Noella Ovid for web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.